Hello, everyone. This is Admiral Jamie Fogo from the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Maritime Nation, a podcast designed to dive deeply into the policy challenges facing America's sea services and the role of the United States as a sea power on the global stage. We aim to provide you with the highest quality analysis on the most pressing maritime security challenges by joining in conversation with key experts and practitioners. This is our 10th and final podcast of the inaugural season of Maritime Nation. On this episode, I am joined by the center staff to take a look back at 2022, a year in review, if you will, and talk a little bit about what is yet to come in 2023. The center was officially launched on January 31st with a ribbon-cutting ceremony presided over by Representative Elaine Luria of Virginia. Early on, we developed our logo and our brand with a symbolic trident for sea power and the open book for the academy in the background. Our battle cry is from the Latin, Semper Invictus, which means always undefeated because the United States Navy has never lost a fight at sea and we at CMS are going to do our best to maintain that record. Embracing that moniker, we set out from there to establish the center as America's intellectual hub for the study of the relationship between maritime power and international security. We brought together a team of professionals that include our navalist, Dr. Steve Wills, senior analyst, Andrew Park, analyst, Ben Minardi, and chief of staff, Gabby Moran. The team has worked to build the center, raise its profile, and establish key bodies of work. In just under a year, the center has lent its in-house expertise to numerous publications, strategic convenings, and other dialogues on the maritime dimension of international security. 2022 has been filled with milestone moments and memories that we are excited to recap with you today. I think the best place to start is here on the platform that brings us together each month, Maritime Nation. We began this podcast with the goal of providing analysis on pressing security challenges and connecting listeners both inside and outside the Beltway with rich stories and analysis explaining the significance of the maritime domain. We have had the pleasure and honor of hosting a number of distinguished guests. Among them was Mr. Norman Polmar, a naval historian and author of over 50 books. At the end of that episode, Norman eloquently explains the raison d'etre for the center. Take a listen. I think it's important that our national leadership understands that. It's a very trite phrase, but sometimes trite phrases are reality. We are dependent on the sea for political, economic, and military reasons. But the trend in this country today is to not recognize that. The trend today is to, well, we're self-sufficient. Well, we don't need to be friends with so-and-so. We don't need to deter so-and-so. It doesn't affect us. The world is an environment that does affect us. Something happening such as clearing land in the Amazon rainforest will affect us. We get more beef, but it also affects our climate. The United States has to understand that we are still a maritime nation, and maritime activity is vital 
to most nations, even a almost landlocked nation now like Ukraine. Their ability to kill a Russian ship or two or three is very important. Our ability to be able to trade with whom we want, when we want, by sea, because you can't carry grain by airplane, is vital. And I think you gentlemen, I think the Navy League, I think all of us should help make people in the United States, our leadership, and just the population aware of that. Then came Ambassador Harry Harris on the 72nd anniversary of the Korean War. We talked about the United States policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan and Asia writ large. Here's what Ambassador and Admiral Harris had to say. I believe that the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity, and that means uh, uh, that's the question of whether we would defend Taiwan or not in the case of a cross-strait invasion by the PRC to forcibly unite uh, Taiwan uh, with the mainland. Uh, we, we have deliberately left that question unclear. We have left it ambiguous. So the PRC doesn't know if we would uh, attack or we would defend Taiwan or not. And that, has, that policy, Jamie, in my opinion, has served us well for the last 40 years or so. Uh, but I think today, in 2022, uh, that policy no longer serves us well because it has no effect at all, in my opinion, on the PRC's uh, calculus on when and, uh, and if uh, they'll attack Taiwan to forcibly uh, reunite, uh, reunite uh, Taiwan with the mainland. They're going to do what they're going to do uh, as long as we are ambiguous about what we are going to do. And I think that's the key. Um, I think that, um, uh, that we need to have a, a new policy of strategic clarity uh, where we are clear uh, about what we would do. And I think it's important for three primary audiences. It's important for the Taiwanese, for the Taiwan people. Uh, so they'll know whether the United States will come to their aid militarily or not. And they can then make the decision on, on how to defend themselves, what weapons to buy, that kind of thing, in a more uh, complete uh, view. So they'll have a complete understanding of, of what the expectations are. It's important to the PRC. So if we're ambiguous about it, uh, ambiguity doesn't serve us well in the 21st century on this issue, I believe. So we need to be clear to the PRC uh, what we would do. And finally, and most importantly, I think we need to be clear to the American people whose sons and daughters are going to actually do the fighting, uh, and we need to be clear with them on, on uh, what we would do uh, in the case uh, of a cross-strait invasion by the PRC. So that's, that's kind of where I am on, on the issue. Now, to the president's remarks, he has said this at least three times publicly, that we'll defend Taiwan. Uh, he said this at least three times publicly since he became uh, the president. And each time, uh, people have tried to walk it back. Either the National Security Council, uh, the State Department, or DOD have tried to walk it back. Well, I think maybe we should believe him. We should take him at his word. Roger and we should plan for him.
Now let me turn to our navalist, Dr. Steve Wills. Dr. Wills has been a key contributor to Maritime Nation, and here is a look at his conversation with Dr. Andrew Lambert, a maritime historian from King's College in London. The Naval Service has always been characterized as the silent service and not being uh, communicative enough about its successes uh, for certain. Uh, it's also worth pointing out here, as you mentioned, the Crimean War, that a whole generation of officers who wrote the U.S. 1980s maritime strategy uh, came back and looked at your Crimean War book when it first came out and said, oh, this is the blueprint for defeating Russia. We just knock yeah. over one of those various Russian fronts and impose enough casualties and stress on the lines of communication within the larger Russian state, and Russia must sue for peace. Uh, so there's belated recognition yep. of that, at least in the United States maritime world. Now, working to inform the debate in Washington and in capitals across the globe, we created an online journal called The Mock, which stands for the Maritime Operations Center. Every Navy fleet headquarters has one. We needed one, too, here at the Center for Maritime Strategy. Analyst Ben Minardi is the editor-in-chief. Ben, tell us about your work at The Mock. What was the need for The Mock? And give us some content and context. Well, The Mock emerged along much the same lines as the center itself a gap existing in connecting maritime issues to their national security context. In the case of the mock specifically, we surveyed the field, and as many listeners may well know, there are plenty of long-form journals and popular news sites that cover maritime security issues, but rather few short-form publications oriented towards easily digestible analysis and arguments on these same issues. And so we've created the mock, which has published a variety of authors from our team, the Navy, Coast Guard, and many others. We've covered everything from the naval salvo equations to the role of semiconductors in the questions over an invasion of Taiwan and how the sea services execute the national defense strategy by campaigning forward every day. Now I'm joined by my colleague, Andrew Park, the senior analyst who leads the research projects on the Indo-Pacific here at the center. Andrew, welcome aboard. Would you share with the audience what you've been working on? And even more importantly, tell us about uh, that milestone that you just achieved, your acceptance to go to officer's candidate school and be a naval officer in the Office of Naval Intelligence. Thank you for having me, sir. I wanted to become an officer of the U.S. military thanks to my experience serving in the U.S. South Korea Combined Forces Command, the CFC in Korea during my 20s. When I was still a dual citizen, I served the South Korean mil Mandatory Military Service as an interpreter and translator at the CFC J3. And that was such a formative experience as I participated in numerous joint military exercises and briefing flight officers, mostly the U.S. Army, guys on daily basis. I was really impressed by the commanding generals, including Lieutenant General Shampo and General Thurman. They were not only charismatic and professional, but also extremely humble and exemplary. For example, they remembered, uh, they remembered every name of junior briefers and the most junior enlistees' names. That is why I wanted to become like them being the servant leader in the U.S. military uniform, working with sailors, soldiers, and the airmen. 
Um, I decided to pursue a military intelligence career due to my expertise in the international security and my cultural and language background. And I pursued the Navy Direct Commission Officer Program, DCO program, because it is the best among different branches of services, right? As I was learning from my mentor who served as a national intelligence officer, Navy intel officers are the ones who truly work on the intelligence processing cycle, while others are more of managers of the intel specialists. That's fantastic. And just uh, to clarify for our audience, when you were in Korea, you were a, a citizen of South Korea. You served as a sergeant in the ROC Army. Then you came here to the United States, became an American, educated at Georgetown University, and put in your package for ODS, and you were selected. So uh, you're living the American dream, Andrew. Congratulations. And now tell us about your work in the Asia Pacific. Thank you, sir. Yes, um, as you pointed out, I have been focusing on the Indo-Pacific region. My first project was programming the podcast episode we just mentioned previously, discussing the Korean War, the U.S.-South Korea alliance today, and the broader implications of the U.S.-Indo-Pacific strategy. It was a great episode that honored those who served in the Korean Peninsula during the war and afterward, including Admiral and Ambassador Harry Harris, who, by the way, shared a precious insight on the need for strategic clarity on Taiwan. Then I published a couple of pieces on the mock, including the one that I analyzed the implications of the RIMPAC, the world's largest military exercise led by the U.S. Navy biennially. This year's RIMPAC was more significant in a way as it accomplished two things. First, it proved the Navy's commitment toward the region by bringing the exercise back to full strength after it was downscaled to one-third of its usual size due to the pandemic. Also, the Navy has not claimed a credit, but I believe it has contributed to deterring China from taking reckless actions in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this summer. Remember, this year, the RIMPAC witnessed the participation of around 25,000 personnel, 170 aircraft, three submarines, over 30 unmanned systems, 387 service ships, and nine land forces from across 26 nations. It was conducted from June 29th to August 4th, and I do not know if it was planned accordingly, but Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was between August 2nd and 3rd. And thankfully, this article on RIMPAC was reprinted on a journal published by Foreign Area Officer Association per their request. And Andrew, you recently published a piece on AUKUS. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. It was a response piece to an article written by an aerospace expert. In that article, which was published by The Hill, the author asserts that the Australian government should abandon the nuclear-powered attack submarines, the SSNs, planned under the AUKUS Trilateral Partnership Agreement, and acquire the B-21 strategic bombers instead. That makes little or no operational sense for Australia. While strategic bombers and SSNs may not be mutually exclusive in Australia's doctrine in the future. The capability that is designed to do only one thing, bombing China, is beyond Australia's budget and needs today. Hence, I published a counterpiece with Dr. Stephen Mills on the same platform, The Hill, to explain why the Australian government should carry on with the current agreement. Well, I couldn't agree more with you about submarines since I'm a submariner and have been <laughs> one for 40 years. Andrew. 
The uh, traditional geopolitics and the Indo-Pacific strategy are not the only areas you've been working on. Please share with the audience what else you've been doing. Yes, sir. It was mainly to support the center and your speaking engagements, but I really enjoyed researching this matter, which is the commercial shipping and the U.S. sea lift capabilities. As a matter of fact, this topic is deeply connected with the Indo-Pacific region as well. In times of war and crisis requiring our involvement and action in a distant location, we must send our troops and war supplies. Although the timing is debatable, if there is going to be a major war, there is a high chance that it will be in the Indo-Pacific, the region that is predominantly a maritime domain. This means that although airlift could be utilized, sea lift is the capability that we must rely heavily on in the beginning of the conflict. However, today's Ready Reserve Force, RRF, a subset of vessels within Marat's National Defense Reserve Fleet, ready to support the rapid worldwide deployment of the U.S. military forces, possesses just 41 ships, of which 33 are dry cargo ships. We had 83 dry cargo ships during the Desert Shield operations. Another entity that supports the deployment is the Military Sea Lift Command, MSC, uh, which possesses 125 ships, but they primarily focus on direct support to the Navy in the combat logistics force and cannot move the bulk cargo and fuel needed to maintain overseas combat operations like Desert Storm. Hence, foreign vessels would be requisitioned, but if you add Hong Kong into the calculation, China currently owns 30% of the world fleet. Any attempt to requisition merchant ships to sea lift operations in a war with China would be problematic at best. And Andrew, I couldn't agree with you more on the aspect of how important the commercial maritime arm in support of the fleet uh, truly is in the 21st century. We don't have enough combat logistics forces to support the warfighters afloat, and so we're going to have to rely on uh, dual-use ships, uh, ones that can be used to carry commercial cargo in peacetime and also wartime cargo in times of conflict. That's not just bulk carriers and container ships. That's also oilers and tankers, and we are woefully unresourced uh, in regard to oilers and tankers. And I think Military Sealift Command has a plan to deal with that. In fact, Dr. Wills and I were down at a war game in Norfolk just last week with Rear Admiral Wetlofer, and he brought in about 75 members of the commercial industry and kind of opened their eyes to how this uh, would all fold out in, in times of increasing tension in, in the region, particularly Asia Pacific. So kudos to Admiral Wetlofer for what he's doing, and thanks to the commercial industry for their interest and support. Ladies and gentlemen, let me now turn to Ms. Gabby Moran, our venerable chief of staff, to talk about our power to convene and some of the milestone events and legislative engagement that we conducted last year and how you connect all the dots together at the Center for Maritime Strategy. Gabby, over to you. Well, thank you, sir, for having me on this episode. I'm excited to have the the chance to join everyone finally on Maritime Nation. And like you said, I think that it's been a fruitful year for the center, and we've achieved a lot of the goals we set out to achieve back in January when we all joined. And again, as you mentioned, we've exercised our power to convene. And I think that that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but 
in reality, it's us bringing together different stakeholders to tackle these issues and address the maritime components of the security issues that are so often already discussed throughout Washington. And it's pretty easy to throw together just a discussion and uh, gather people, talk about the issues. But I think that we've always approached this from the angle of, well, what are we getting out of this? You know, time is precious. Our resources are precious. And how do we maximize our our impact using what we have and i think that we experienced that especially at the start of the founding of the center when the start of the war in ukraine broke out and i think it was a really good lesson as we started our efforts in that people are scattered resources are scarce how do we generate impact for good and how do we address where we can be of most help in the policy arena and again, as you mentioned, we've targeted different constituencies, and I think one that we've engaged well has been the Hill. And we have some great allies, some great partners on the Hill working really, really hard to ensure that our sea services have the resources that they need to execute their role in our national security strategy. But one area that I think we identified as overlooked was the staffers and the staffer constituency. And how do we best arm them to be ready to advise their principles and provide the best possible assessment of these maritime questions? I think that perhaps before the war in Ukraine, a lot of people may not have known the difference between a destroyer and maybe a frigate. And I can say that I entered this job certainly not knowing the difference either. So over the summer, we hosted the Congressional Maritime Intensive, which was essentially a schoolhouse to educate staffers from both parties across different offices with very different portfolios and even at different levels of seniority. And we were able to provide them with a number of modules across three days. And to our surprise, they all stayed. And now we're seeing the the fruits of that labor and people are coming now with more questions and people have identified that they feel better equipped to answer some of the questions coming their way from their boss or bosses. So that was one of our key efforts, I would say, this year to engage people in a new and innovative way. But we've also carried out that mission in other events, such as the America's Future Fleet Symposium. And we just hosted that now two weeks ago with our partners at the Naval War College Foundation. And it was a great opportunity to engage the intersection of traditional academia, but also policy analysis in a DC setting. Much to our surprise, again, the people came. Um, it's hard to tell when you- We had a packed house, <laughs> when, you, when you first start something, you don't know if people are going to come. You don't know uh, really what audience you'll retain, but we've been able to, like you mentioned in your introduction, connect people with something they know is important. People know that the maritime domain matters, but we've been able to show them just how critical it is and different intersection points across the policy field. And it really helped to have uh, Secretary of the Navy, Carlos Del Toro, participate. He was our keynote speaker and uh, Chief of Naval Operations, Mike Gilday. And uh, one of the gentlemen that I worked with uh, when I was in the Pentagon as a junior officer uh, who later became the Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, the Honorable Bill Lynn. I mean, the lineup was incredible, Gabby. You had a lot to do with that. And you also had a lot to do with the the marketing strategy to bring in people uh, by invitation only from all over Washington, from the think tanks, uh, the policy centers, uh, the Hill and 
industry. So it was just a great mix of folks. And uh, as you pointed out, you know, people stayed all day because they were interested in each of the different subject areas on fleet design, logistics at sea, and that very, very difficult domain, um, cyber and AI, and what that means for the future of warfare. Well, I, I would agree with that, sir. And I think that we have a pretty good base going into 2023 to help address different issue sets. So I know in 2023, we'll be looking more at the Arctic. And listeners of Maritime Nation know that that's something we've been interested in since our second episode in March or February of 2022. So we'll be partnering with institutions such as the Wilson Center's Polar Institute. And hopefully that'll be another opportunity to engage allies and partners, members and different entities within USG, industry, and so forth on these issues and how we can best get our sea services the resources they need. Yeah, thanks to Dr. Rebecca Pincus for uh, uh, partnering with us on this at the Wilson Center. I think it's going to be a star-studded lineup and uh, another great day of discussion in what happens next in the Arctic and the high north. It could be the next contested region in the maritime domain. Gabby, Ben, Andrew, and Steve, thanks for all your hard work during 2022. Folks, that's a wrap, and what a great way to finish up our first year. I look forward to seeing you at the Navy League's Sierra Space in April of 2023. The center will participate once again, and we have a great program for you, including uh, our now annual CMS Breakfast, a live recording of Maritime Nation, our podcast, a Nordic panel with Scandinavian CNOs, and particularly two of the newest. Uh, onboarding NATO countries, Sweden and Finland, and finally, a wargaming session with uh, gamer extraordinaire, Mr. Sebastian Bay. This guy is absolutely fantastic, and uh, he's forgotten more about wargaming than I'll ever know. I would like to thank our listeners for joining us each month. If you haven't heard our previous episodes, you can always catch up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts over the holidays. Additional episodes and all the content described here today can be found on our new website. We're pretty excited about that. So please write this down, www.centerformaritimestrategy.org. I think, like me, you'll find it absolutely fantastic. And special thanks to James Peterson of the Navy League, our sound engineer, for his support in making the recording and editing of Maritime Nation not only possible, but extremely professional. Thanks, James. We look forward to speaking with you in 2023 on season two of Maritime Nation. Happy holidays. 